the University of York's Research Snapshot. Exploring some of the most interesting research at the University of York. This is the University of York's Research Snapshot, and I'm joined by two medieval historians, Professor Mark Ormrod and Professor Sarah Rees-Jones, who both work in the history department here. The reason why we're here is to discuss the England's Immigrants Project. Can you explain what that is? So this is a project to bring to light and bring to public use a fantastic resource that exists from late medieval England, absolutely unique in the whole of Europe before the 19th century. Very, very elaborate records of first-generation immigrants to the country, all caught up in a tax net because the English Parliament in 1440 decided that it would tax people for being foreign. And as a consequence, there is a legacy of records from which we can determine the names, the occupations, the relationships, the places of residence and the nationalities of some 65,000 people in records of the 15th century in England. It's where, where perhaps taxes have a positive um, outcome. For historians, tax records are a great gift. You must have spent hours poring over documents and wearing linen gloves and it must have been a real labour of love. No gloves. <laughs> no gloves. <laughs> no, the, uh, the National Archives is very clear about this, that the clean hands are the most effective tools for examining medieval documents. <laughs> I'm really surprised. It's very important, that. But seriously, what this, of course, demands is that very, very high level of skill. So the researchers who worked full-time on, on this material uh, are highly trained. They have PhDs in medieval history. They understand the documents that they're working with. They can read all the languages of record in this period, which are Latin, Anglo-Norman, French, and Middle English. Uh, and that's why having a, a public funding for doing a project like this is so essential and important because it is very labour intensive. It's also absolutely fascinating. Were there any surprises? For me, the remarkable thing is the range of nationalities represented. The largest numbers of people coming into England in this period were coming from Scotland, from France, from the Low Countries, uh, from Ireland, which of course in this period was itself an English dominion. But then you also get people from the Mediterranean countries, significant numbers of Italians, Greeks, small numbers of people from the Iberian Peninsula, and then people who are actually defined, in effect, by the colour of their skin. So we have uh, a number of people in the database who have the surname Black or other associated words, which may very well be telling a, a racial story there. Um, but we also have people who are declared to have come from the land of Ind, which is the great landmass beyond the Middle East. And these people are apparently Christian converts who have made their way into England uh, through a very, very long migration. So people coming in not just because they see England as a, as a land of plenty, but actually also the concept of the refugee as well. 
when certainly I think of medieval history and the records that still exist, it's often a certain um, person who might have records still extant. Is that true for this population? That's one of the real gifts of this material, is that it is very socially inclusive. You actually get people who are described as beggars, for example. You have a lot of low-status people, people who are described as servants, labourers, people who are never normally recorded in this period. The number and geographical spread of servants and poor people was something that really the data has illuminated for the first time. And um, although women were not recorded as systematically as men, uh, the numbers of female migrants was very interesting as well. Quite quite a pattern there, because it seems that the majority of uh, poorer migrants coming from overseas were, were men. But... Of course, Scotland was a a different country then, and it looks like a very large proportion of the migrants walking over the border south from Scotland were women. So it's for the Middle Ages, that's a really rare record of very poor working-class northern Scottish women who wouldn't really be recorded in any other source. I'm just wondering if um, there is anything that can be said about what it was like to be an immigrant in England at this time, how they were considered or or seen? There was growing animosity towards immigrants in some parts of the country, particularly in London in the 15th century, although um, a lot of that animosity was not against people of lower status but was against wealthier kind of migrant merchant groups who uh, English merchants were in competition with, were perhaps jealous of, believed that they were undermining their own success in business. Yes, and uh, government was under some pressure to show that it was doing something in response to this kind of public demand. And uh, Parliament invented this tax as a means of making foreigners pay to say we're, we're doing this because this is responding to a swell of public opinion. I mean, there aren't exactly direct parallels to today, perhaps, but it's striking that some of the language that you're using and and some of the anxieties do strike some quite remarkable parallels. Well, I I set up the project initially in response to the major debate that was going on in the early 2010s uh, over immigration to this to this country, and it's been uh, amazing to see over the course of time, you know, how many resonances emerge from this. But also, as historians, of course, our task is really to uh, to complicate and to nuance current debates. It's not to draw very facile comparisons between then and now. We are dealing, after all, with a pre-industrial society very very largely here. We're dealing with a very different kind of set of, of, of social and political norms. Nevertheless, those parallels are ones that, that do come through very, very strongly. And what I have learned from this project is that what you do as a historian is you present the material from your period and you allow your audience then to make those conclusions and to draw those comparisons with contemporary debates. I think that if you, you know, superficially there are similarities, uh, but there are also very striking differences with the the debate as I understand it today. I mean, one is the degree to which the animosity against foreign merchants is led by uh, senior financiers and merchants in the City of London. And that's almost the complete opposite of the language today, where it tends uh, perhaps the strongest support um, 
for parties campaigning against immigration are in poorer communities rather than wealthier ones. So that's just the beginning of a number of very significant differences. So I think the worst lesson that you could take from this is this is how it's always been. And I think it's worthwhile stressing that what our data actually demonstrates on the whole is that the vast majority of foreigners were very successfully integrated into English society. There were no swift communication networks in this period. When people actually moved over significant uh, tracts of land, they were leaving behind the family and the community from which they came. And they had no choice, in a sense, but to actually settle and integrate, especially since there is this amazing diaspora across the countryside where in hundreds and hundreds of small villages there would be say one or two foreigners declared for this tax and you think about the actual practicalities of their daily life uh, the fact is that they that they have to be able to communicate somehow with their employers with their neighbors and so on uh, that they will acquire English that they will acquire English customs and values. I suppose it, then perhaps one thing to think about is is the sense of England as a nation having always had a history of immigration. Absolutely. We, we tend to talk about immigration to the British Isles in terms of the sequence of great waves. We talk about the Romans, we talk about the Anglo-Saxons, the Vikings, the Normans, the Huguenots, and so on. And we neglect the fact that generation upon generation, there was small-scale arrival into the country. Also, when you begin to look at how efficiently or not it's uh, imposed, that's very interesting because what you find is that after the first collection of the tax, the enthusiasm for um, actually implementing this legislation and continuing to collect the tax rapidly drains away, especially outside London. Um, and in fact, although the records that we've got are fascinating and very strong, we also know that they're very incomplete. Even in the first taxation, there are areas for which the evidence is really very poor because clearly the community, local community didn't bother um, and they didn't, they didn't really try and implement the legislation very fully. And as time goes on, that pattern becomes stronger and stronger and stronger, with the, some, with the exception of London, really. We've talked a little bit about how this could inform current debates, but can you talk a bit about how policy has changed or perhaps even curricula have changed according to this research? Yes, well, while Mark was running this project, um, there was a, an unconnected initiative to reform the national curriculum for history in secondary schools and for one of the themes to be about migration. It really began when the OCR examination board approached us, uh, realising the fact that they were going to be setting examinations on migration into uh, the British Isles over the last 2,000 years, when there were actually so few resources for teachers and students to actually understand this, uh, this concept before the 19th century. So our material 
material has made its way into the textbooks for these modules. This was a, a major breakthrough for us in the sense of actually having our material as part of this story of the longer process of migration uh, into the British Isles over a period of 2,000 years. And what sort of responses have you had from students or from teachers about this work? We have reports from teachers who say how much, you know, using the database, having that database available and the materials that explain how to use it in the schoolroom have really enriched their teaching and, and, and student learning. And we've, we've got some lovely photographs of primary school in Suffolk, I think it is, isn't it, who did a whole week's work on cloth workers and, and weaving in Suffolk. Um, as a way of telling the story about immigrants who came from Flanders in the 15th century. So lots of really engaging evidence for us in the sense of how children, and younger children as well as older school students have, have really benefited from the materials. And I understand that you're also doing another project with the Museum of London. Yes, and that followed on directly really from these educational initiatives because um, but the largest number of visitors to the Museum of London are school groups and uh, school-aged children. That's typical across the museum sector, but it's particularly true of the Museum of London. So we did hold one of our workshops for teachers in the Museum of London. So we've then gone on to do some more formal work with the Museum of London in a follow-on project where we're trying to go beyond the quantitative data the, the numbers that's in the database and to do research that thinks more about the qualitative experience of migrants. So that's quite new and ongoing at the moment um, and because of our success with London uh, we've also been approached by other more local museums to do similar work with them as well. And I think that what this does is create that virtuous circle where um, documentary evidence that gives you lots and lots of richness in terms of names can be fleshed out and made human by thinking about individual instances, by thinking about the realities of daily life for these people and so on. So drawing in not just the uh, historical documentary sources, but also looking at literary material and looking at material culture, the objects that survive from the period and the buildings that survive from the period, allow us a much more kind of holistic sense of what the immigrant experience really was. And is there a sense that this research has had an even wider impact? Obviously, discussing the history of immigration is becoming a major theme um, in, in not just the educational sector, but more broadly in thinking about um, youth and communication about, of ideas. And there's a not-for-profit organisation called the Runnymede Trust, which has really taken the lead in developing new materials relating to citizenship and belonging and included in that is a website that they've built called Our Migration Story. And once again, that was a website where they approached the England's Immigrants Project and said, can we use your materials to fill in the medieval section of that story? And that site, the Our Migration uh, Story, has been immensely successful. It won the Guardian Prize for the Impact Project of the Year. And the Runnymede Trust are continuing to use it to stimulate debate at the highest levels. So, for example, just last month they managed to secure a Westminster Hall debate in the Houses of Parliament between policymakers, politicians and educationalists about how best to explore the topic of migration 
uh, in schools and more broadly in, in, in youth. So that initiative is being led by them, not by us, but we're really very proud and pleased to have been able to contribute to it and to know that the materials have a kind of life beyond the project itself and are constantly being picked up and used in new ways by other people. The University of York's research snapshots are produced by Philippa Geary. For more information, go to york.ac.uk forward slash research.